Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to Maru Niho Niho sharing with me the story of her career journey today. Maru is the founder of Meti Interactive and leads a team of developers that include artists and programmers. As a games designer and producer, her focus is on meaningful Indigenous storytelling, as culture-based games can be hugely influential. She's published several Māori games, Sparks to Dita Rangatahi How to Manage Depression, Māori Power Wars, a strategic tower defence game, Takaro to teach Rangatahi about coding concepts, and Guardian Maya, an interactive fiction that follows the journey of a Māori woman through a dystopian New Zealand. Maru has won numerous awards and received international recognition for her work. She was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2016 for services to gaming and mental health. In 2017, she was awarded the MCV Pacific Women in Games, the Game Changes Award for Innovator of the Year. And in 2018, she was named as one of Forbes' top 50 women in technology. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Maru and her career today. Kia ora, Maru, and thank you very much for joining me. Kia ora, Anna. Thank you for asking me to participate in your podcast. It's great to be here. Good. And I'm really looking forward to it because having done just a wee bit of research beforehand, I think in terms of careers, I can imagine you've probably got, it sounds like an interesting story to tell. So thank you. Ari, I wanted to start with a a question. I think careers and our thoughts about them don't start when we finish high school or or finish with our education. They often start at a a bit of an earlier age. When you were a kid or or a teenager, what were some of your thoughts about what you wanted to do or or be when you grew up? I remember when I was little, you know, especially around primary, really wanting to do something creative, but I didn't know what. That probably came up because my mother encouraged me to be creative from a really early age, should get me to make stuff. If I wanted to buy something, she'd say, why don't you make it? And yeah, so she always encouraged me to be creative. And I guess I had that in me anyway from a young age. But I didn't know what I wanted to be. Actually, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career life, even through high school. It was, yeah, it was a tricky decision to make. I'd had interests. But yeah, no set career path in my mind during my schooling years. And I think from having spoken to a few women, that's quite common. I'd say it's the, it feels like it's the norm actually to not really know what you want to do when you're at school and that's kind of okay because you will find out what it is. But I like the idea of that creativity and interesting to see that coming back again now and into your career. And if I'm correct, I think you left school at, um, and at 16. And tell me about your first job or, or jobs. What did you learn from those? My first job when I left school was working in retail. I worked in an an op shop. It was a voluntary position because I decided that I had enough of school and wanted to get out there into the big world and discover what I could do, what my potentials were. And because I had left school, I didn't have 
well, apart from uh, a few subjects and school cert where I just managed to, to pass, I didn't have any really, I guess, relevant experience for anything. And so it was quite hard trying to find a job. And my mother said to me as well, if you're going to leave school, then you have to get a job. And so I did. And I was so happy to tell her, Mum, I got a job just up the road in the milk shop. And she was like, okay, so what are you doing? And I said, I'm learning how to stop take. I'm cash handling. I'm learning some skills. And she thought to herself, or she said to me, okay, it's better than nothing. The only thing was is that it was voluntary, so I wasn't getting paid. It didn't last that long because of that. And my career then started in hospitality. So it went from working in an op shop to working in a restaurant in Lower Hutt. Yeah. Mm. And I think even those first jobs, as you say, stock take, cash handling, some of those are the still fundamentals of business and, and learning how organisations work. That, that yeah. even if it was a voluntary role and only temporary, I'm sure you probably gathered some stuff out of it and, it and it saw you on your way. I believe you were in hospitality for quite a while. What was it that you and I guess what were the highlights and the challenges of that period of time? The great thing about working in hospitality is that what I learned was dealing with people, a lot of different people, a lot of the time, and then continued on with my sort of cash handling skills, stock taking, learning how to, I guess, not just work with people, but manage people eventually. Uh, So I started off in the industry waitressing and after I think it was about 10 years I ended up um, owning my own restaurant so yeah I think it was during that time though in hospitality and it comes back to your first question about what I wanted to be I felt as though it was the career I was doing at that moment but it didn't feel that's what I wanted to be it was just that necessity from leaving school and then growing up in that industry, learning the skills around it, which was great because once I started games, I applied all those skills to to my games company. Yeah, but it was more about there's something else for me and I don't know what it is. And it was this bugging question in the back of my mind for years of, I know I'm supposed to be doing something, but I don't know what that is. And yeah, I guess my, that's when my hobby kicked in and, and became a, a career. <laughs> and how did you find the answer to that question of what do I want to do? From a young age, you know, growing up, I did have an interest in playing games. And, and I, would, I grew up in the country, North Canterbury, when I was uh, younger in a place called Tuahiwi. And growing up there, we were outside a lot, entertaining ourselves a lot, playing real games up in trees and building forts and throwing cow patties at each other and all that stuff. So it was fun and games and entertainment or entertaining ourselves. When we moved into Christchurch City, I found new games to play, which were in the local takeaway shops, uh, fish and chip shops. Uh, where they had arcade machines. And, yeah, I think it was about 11. I was at Intermediate. I remember standing in my school uniform anyway, playing Space Invaders and Gallagher and and all sorts of other games and um, really enjoying the experience. And so from that 
point on, right through my life in um, hospitality, I was still playing games, except not in a takeaway shop. And you know, once I could get myself one, I went out and bought Sega, the, the PlayStation, the Xbox, right through. And so it was a hobby for me, but one I really enjoyed. And it was, yeah, around about 16 years ago when, maybe 17 years ago now, when I decided that gaming ago, in terms of playing them uh, for years, I'm going to turn that into now making them. Mm. And that's how Meteor was born. And that maybe my two eldest children who love their, have their games, maybe that might help them in their career in the future. But also, I'm really interested. You had, as you said, you, you had a successful hospitality business that, that you owned, you were running. Probably felt like quite a risk to go and do something different. How did you weigh up the risk versus the desire to go and do something else? Yeah, it certainly was a risk. So my husband and I were running um, restaurants together and when I had decided that I wanted to start um, a game studio, he sort of looked at me and said, oh, I know you like playing them, but making them, how are you going to do that? And I said to him, I don't know, but I'm going to try. And so it was really, it was a really difficult decision to make because what happened was I left him to it and tried to help as much as I could from behind the scenes, like doing that and stuff and, you know, making sure the staff were okay and all that. I had to, oh, it was just such a balance, you know. It was like I had to dedicate um, a lot of time to setting up my studio, learning. I had to learn. It was a huge learning curve on the industry itself and as well as dedicate some time to making sure that our business was okay and picking up where my husband couldn't so in the early days it was extremely hard very time consuming I would be travel oh I would be traveling as well because to learn I had to to go overseas and you know max out the credit cards and being very careful not to take from one business to fund another business you know I was really trying to do this like from scratch and I actually did my credit card was maxed out so badly (laughs) and the first year it was just you know crazy my my savings went into it um into the travel and into building the prototype and yeah but the risk the feeling of risk especially was very high because I thought if I'm going to do this and it doesn't work then I've gone and maxed out not just my credit card, but my mother's credit card, mm. my savings, and spend a whole lot of time doing that. Yeah. 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 And that's a really brave choice, but I like the fact that kind of that passion and determination and resilience, I'm guessing, really came to the fore during that period. What is it about the gaming industry that you really love? Wow. I think... That also comes back to question number one. You know, what I really thought about when I was young, what do I want to do? And I knew it would be something creative. And, yes, games are very creative. It takes your, well, you give your ideas, you you brainstorm your ideas and then you turn them into to a game. And all the planning that goes in behind it, the sort of what platform is it for, 
the target age group, what story are you telling? How do you tell that story? And that's just the storytelling side. And then you get into the, what is the visual look of this game? You know, is it 2D? Is it 3D? Is it NED at all? It might be text-based. And all of that is very creative. Even the technical side is creative because you have to think about the, the potential game engine that you'll be using, what the person does in the game, so the mechanics and the gameplay. There'll be things like, should we make this puzzle-based or story-based or a mixture of both? So those things keep the mind very much being creative all the time. It is very challenging, though. It can be stressful, as like with anything. When I started uh, Meteor, or my game studio, I felt I had come to the right place. <laughs> it was like, oh, finally. Mm. But really, mm. after I had been in the business for maybe three or four years, then I really felt like I'd come to the right place because I think over that length of time, I was able to sit back and finally relax and say it was worth the risk. This is great. I really love this. I enjoy what I do. And I think a couple more years after that, I really felt that I was in the right place because I had made a game that wasn't just for entertainment purposes, but it was educational and um, there to help. And at that point, I was like, I am in the right place. This is 100%. I've done it. This is exactly what I wanted to do. And I say to myself, I wish I knew that when I was at primary school. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Who knows where I could have been now? (laughs) Mm. But then again... (laughs) And, and as you said, even those years of your career, actually managing and motivating people and learning about how to run a profitable business will have all been enormously helpful, I'm sure, in the last 17 years of running Meteor. Yes, definitely. I was able to, the management side was no problem to bring a team together, to get them to work together, to work on a project together, because it was very similar to that in hospo where you'd have your sections in the restaurant and you'd be saying, okay, you're on section A, B, C, D. And, you know, there might be customers complaining or, or something. And and so you then become this person that needs to negotiate <laughs> and, and talk and what happened and why and all those sort of soft skills that come through hospitality. But what I did have to learn was how to actually make a game. Mm. So that was the most challenging part for me. The next challenging part was actually pitching and, and getting a deal. That was mm. very difficult. I can imagine. And I wanted to come back to that piece you knew that you said about learning how to make a game. I have in my head how you might train to be a lawyer or an accountant or those kind of more traditional professions. How did you learn how to make a game? I tried to find a course in New Zealand, well, in Auckland, before I started. I was like, I need to find a course that will teach me how to make games. And I was quite prepared to go to uni or a tertiary institution to help me. I searched and I searched and there were none. There were no game development courses in New Zealand. And the ones that I could find were all overseas. And I was like, 
okay, mm, there must be another way. So what I did was find the next closest thing, and that was a multimedia course at NatCol, which is now UB, back in 2002. And what that course, it was a year long, what that course taught me were the basics of 2D, 3D, animation, audio and video editing, website design, and some basic programming. And I thought, okay, let's do this. So I spent a year doing that and it was great because it gave me the basics of the graphical side that I could use um, to make games. I finished the course. I still didn't know how to make a game, but at least I had some knowledge around some of the tools I could use to help me move forward. How I actually learnt to make a game was I travelled to LA and San Francisco, both is in Los Angeles and the Game Developers Conference is in San Francisco. So I hit those two and I also went to a games conference in Melbourne and multiple times, so one year and then the next year and then the next year. And each time I was there, I would get my little timetable with a program on it and all the ones that I needed to be in, which were around how to make games. And I sat in those talks with a notebook and just went for it, just about recorded every word. And I didn't have one of those uh, voice recorders. Smartphones weren't out then, so it was all written (laughs) very quickly and messily in, in in a notepad. And each time I would go to a conference, I'd come back and plan a little bit more and and understand a little bit more. Eventually, I felt confident enough to build um, my first prototype, which was called Cube, and that was actually my first game that was published. So um, the prototype of Cube was a huge learning curve. I employed two graduates from Auckland Uni. They'd just come off a computer science degree, we sat there together and and built this prototype. And so next time I went back to GDC and E3 and the AGDC in, in Melbourne, I was pitching. So the first part of my journey was learning how to make games. The next part of my journey was taking my prototype with me and, yeah, doing a really scary thing, which was like, pitching to people and asking them for money. Mm. And particularly, there aren't, gaming is is still a male-dominated industry, particularly in terms of the people who run it or the people who invest in it. There's a lot more girls and women now playing games. And equally, in terms of where where funding goes, it's, it's the statistics research shows that it's less likely to go to women, it's more likely to go to men. What kind of challenges or, or obstacles have you faced as, as a woman in trying to develop and run your gaming business? Yeah, no, that was another challenge, especially at these big conferences back in those days as well. But one thing I did notice big time was that I was only one of very few women at these events. And I remember being asked if I, you know, what I did. And I remember saying, oh, um, I work in games. And they were like, oh, in the marketing department. And I was like, oh, no, actually, I own my own company. And and then being laughed at. like, And they're going, what's so funny? What are you laughing at? Mm. And then the comment was, well, girls don't make games. Girls don't actually play games. And I remember standing there, 
you know, with my eyes wide open thinking, oh, well, maybe not where you're from, but where I'm from, girls play games. <laughs> it was just, they weren't, well, they were comments and it, it, they were comments that didn't make me feel any better about what I was trying to do in terms of I already find it hard being there. It's already challenging trying to learn um, everything I can about the industry as fast as I can. And then hearing comments like, oh, girls don't make games. And then being laughed at. And there were other comments, mainly at these conferences. And then we'd see portrayal of females and games being a bit unrealistic. And and I always thought to myself, wow, if I'm to do a, a female lead character, she's going to be so cool and real and look pretty normal, look cool normal, but not have the tiniest waist ever and the biggest boobs ever because it just looks weird. <laughs> it doesn't look right. It's just a crazy thing that was really big in games. Yeah, so it was difficult and I knew that it was going to be hard anyway because I'm, I would say, a naturally shy person. I knew it was going to be hard anyway to go to these places, but I was very excited And the biggest thing that was, you know, the biggest challenge for me was at these conferences, there would be a publisher and you knew that I had to talk to that person. And usually they would be speaking first and then when they finish speaking, you know, whoomph, the crowd goes in and tries to get the card or, or the appointment or the meeting. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, how on earth am I going to get to this person? Because... He'll be crowded, you know, by usually guys. And I didn't fancy myself being an elbower, sort of pushing my way forward. <laughs> and, and so I had to learn very quickly, ah, if I want to talk to a speaker, I'm going to sit right up the front. So as soon as they finish, I'll be the first one right there. And, but, of course, everyone had that same idea, so you'd have to get there a bit earlier to get your seat. But the hardest thing was I would see my male peers chatting to a publisher or a funder and they would have really casual conversations like, oh, hey, my, my name's whoever and, hey, would you like to, to go downstairs to the bar and, and have a chat over a beer? Mm. And I thought, oh, that's not going to work for me. I just can't go up to some random publisher that I don't know and say, would you like to go downstairs for a drink? <laughs> that's not going to work for me. So, yeah, I guess it was about being more strategic in my thinking and how I can approach these people. And then once I do, what can I say that's going to get them to pay attention? And that was really easy, actually, because what it was my accent, as soon as I introduced myself, say, hey, my name's Maru and I'd like to talk to you and I have an idea to pitch um, or I have a prototype to pitch, they would look at me and say, where are you from? Mm. And I'd be like, New Zealand. And they'll be like, oh, New Zealand. And so that was a conversation starter. Mm. Yeah, and then I had them, uh, usually, not with everyone. That was the main thing. And I had to do this big talk about Lord of the Rings and and our film industry and all the, the cool things about New Zealand before I got to my pitch. But... It was my way in, you know. It was something that I thought, oh, they're really interested in New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, so that, I guess, with that hardship and feeling a bit 
isolated and alone came the thoughts and ideas about how I can approach this and how can I make the situation work for me. So it didn't happen overnight, but it did happen. (laughs) And what I love about that story and that journey through there is you didn't try to be like everybody else. You actually identified what was different and maybe unique and something that would capture people's attention and approached it in your way. Mm. And it strikes me as well in terms of some of the games that your company has developed, that as you said, they're not just for entertainment or just simply how do we bring in the big bucks with this game? They've actually got a strong sense of purpose and learning and behind them as well. And I think having more, more balance in the gaming industry is probably likely to create more games that that have a broader range of purposes, some entertainment, but some learning as well. Yeah, for sure. My original, I guess, goal was to create games for entertainment and Cube was born, it was developed, pitched and developed and put that out there on the market. And that was my foot in the door moment. It was like, yay, finally got a game out there, which made my game life a little bit easier after that because before that I had no published title, uh, nothing, and nobody really wanted to talk to me. And so once I had my first title out there, it was a little bit easier. My second game, which was called Sparks, that was completely different and because that was about um, mental health and being able to bring a game like that together straight off the bat after making a game like Cube was quite a big jump Mm. because Sparks had dealt with real-world problems. And what we had to do was computerise the therapy um, in a gaming environment. It was after doing, well, probably during the game development where I realised I had that moment of actually, you know, games can educate and they do educate because you're learning through play and so my direction at that point went not away from games still in games but it went from more about let's just make a game for the sake of making a game because it'll be entertaining and fun to let's still do that but with a purpose you know let's put some learning in here and go to our target markets with games that are going to teach them something. And as it turned out, the Kopapa Māori or Te Ao Māori side of it came in very strongly after that. So it's perfect. It was perfect marriage of sort of learning, storytelling and planning. Yeah, absolutely. And Maru, as you look back on your career now, what are some of your proudest career moments? Oh, that's a hard one <laughs> because... <laughs> My first one would have been like, I actually stuck with it and did it. My first one would have been my published, my first published game, mm-hmm. um, which was Q, because to get to that point, for someone to take me seriously and back me was a huge thing because I'd been pitching for almost two years, well, learning, pitching, travelling for almost two years and I was getting a whole lot of, yeah, looks great, and never heard from them again, or straight up in my face, no, it's something we're not interested in. And that can sort of make you feel 
down, all the no's. And I knew, and I made there one moment of crying in a hotel room in San Francisco because I just felt like I'd wasted the whole time going there because no one was interested in anything that I was pitching. And I remember thinking, this might be it. I should just give up because, and I've just spent all this money over these years traveling and it's not going to happen. And then turning that around and saying, no, over the support of my family and friends, turning that, those thoughts around and saying, no, you've come this far, don't stop now. You know, so there were lots of moments like that before Cube was picked up on. And so when it was signed, when I did actually have a publisher sign it, it was a huge sigh of relief. Felt like I had really achieved some of those worries about wasting time and money had all just like evaporated in a second. It was like poof, gone. And yeah, so that would probably be a, a standout, a huge standout moment was the publishing of my first game. The next one, because I, I put them all equally, <laughs> so it's hard to pick one over the other. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> the next one is, is probably more of an internal one, which is really valid because it led me on my path where I am today and it's something that we just I just talked about was the realization or understanding that games are that I could be developing games that are more than just entertainment. They could be educational and help. They could be a tool set of solutions to, to problems um, that we have out there. That realization about that feeling of now I really know why I'm making games. It's so I can tell stories and give the tools or make digital tools for young people or not necessarily young people, it could be all people, anyone out there that could help them. And, and so that was, it, it almost felt like everything I had done beforehand was building up to that point. And so that felt personal achievement that, I leaned heavily into from that point on. It was like that moment. That It was like that, whoa, I woke up now moment. <laughs> and everything else before that had been dreaming in a weird sort of way. Um, yeah, and, and I think the other achievements for me are just the, the awards that I've received. So totally unexpected Never, ever in a million years thought I would get something for something. So proud of myself, to be honest, that I did and very happy because that meant somebody recognised the work I was doing. And one last question, Maru. Have you got any career advice for other girls or, or women? Yeah, I would say that if, like me, you're deciding to switch or still undecided about what you want to do, don't sweat it. It'll come to you like it did with me. Like literally I woke up one day and I was like, I'm going to make games. You know, they just like came out of the blue kind of, even though I was a gamer. And then I made it happen, you know. But that thought, those thoughts about what do I want to be, what do I want to do, I would say don't push it. It'll, it'll come. If you're making a switch, like what I did too, there is going to be an element of risk with anything that you do. Even changing jobs, there's a risk. The risk could be that you don't actually like the job after all or you don't like 
team of people that you work with. So I think it's just how you manage the risk. Yeah, it's about thinking of if I do this, what is it if it doesn't work out I can do? Or how can I say it? Being prepared, you know, for it to fail and not being scared of failure. Oh, my gosh, don't be scared of failure because if that's one thing that will stop you right at the start, that is, you know, oh, it's not going to work before you even try. You know, you have to try. And then once you're on that try path, you know, you're making your move forward, just take it a step at a time. You don't have to run full force ahead. Every step gets you closer to that goal. And don't be, yeah, I think don't be scared to fail. It's okay. I failed here. I failed a lot in, in things that I've done before. Sometimes I think back to how I could have done things better and all, but all those little fails that I had have led me right to where I am right now. If I had succeeded, I might have been on a slightly different path and not making games that you know, could potentially help. I might have just stuck with entertainment games that might have flopped and then I might have been out of business by now or maybe a few years ago. So the little fails or even the big fails can help shape your path. Um, so don't be scared to, to fail. It is a risk um, of time and it is a risk of money, depending on what you do. But unless you take that step forward, you just won't know. And if you don't know, it's going to bug you for the rest of your life. <laughs> I love it. So thank you, Mara. And what wonderful advice, because I think so so many of us do get held back from doing something because we're scared, actually, what if it flops? And what if nobody likes sort of buys it? And, you know, what if we fail? And whereas actually, as you said, you know, all those little, little and big fails sometimes have been learning points and have got you to where you are today. Maru, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today and to hear about your journey and the transitions and the challenges that you've overcome along the way. Um, So thank you very much for sharing it. Thank you, Anna. It's been really nice talking to you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.